anybody can do this. It's just a question of making up your mind, finding out what you need, finding out those baby steps and getting outside and doing it. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Hello, my friend. Welcome to the second episode of season three. Okay, where do I start today? (laughs) I feel the need to acknowledge a silly little mistake I made when I posted last week's season three opening episode. If you tuned in last week and listened to the episode, you probably noticed something a little strange. Once you got past the intro and the interview started for some strange reason... Only the voice of my guest, Beth Barani, could be heard. When I edited the episode, my voice was there, as it should be, but at some point in the editing process, I must have screwed something up or my editing software glitched. Who knows? Here's the thing. I was in a rush to post the episode, and I didn't listen to it before posting. Rookie mistake. Luckily, a couple of friends who listened to the podcast noticed and let me know so I could fix it. Here's a very big thank you to Holly Totten and Colleen Byrne for giving me a heads up. I fixed it. So if you go back now, you will find the episode in its entirety. I hope you will go back and listen because my conversation with Beth Barani was so rich. Go, go check it out. It's episode 110. Well, what do you do when you make a mistake? You fix it. You move on. Lesson learned. Speaking of moving on and up, I can't wait for you to hear today's conversation with my guest, Deirdre Wallenick, who is the oldest woman at the age of 70 to rock climb El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. For context, El Cap, as it is known, is a 3,000-foot high rock face typically takes climbers around four, maybe six days to reach the top. She did it for the first time at the age of 66 with her son, Alex Honnold, who is best known for the movie Free Solo, in which he climbed that same spot without ropes or safety gear. Deirdre made that climb with Alex, taking 13 hours up and six hours down on the lurking fear route, And then she made the climb again up a different route on her 70th birthday, beating her own record as the oldest woman ever to climb it. But before we move into conversation with this exceptional woman, I want to talk about something. I, I, I really have a question for you. Do you ever see the accomplishments of someone exceptional and think to yourself, wow, that's awesome. They're amazing. I could never do that. I'm just, yeah, you know the routine. I'm here to call that out right now as stinking thinking. Don't feel bad. You're not alone. We all do it. I do it. Even the exceptional Deirdre Wallenick has done it. So for some context, Deirdre is a professor who teaches five different languages, speaks eight languages, and plays at least five instruments. In fact, she founded and conducted the West Sacramento Community Orchestra and played in many community orchestras and smaller ensembles. She plays flute, clarinet, piano, keyboard, 
Oh, my goodness. She's a published author. She somehow managed to raise not one but two ultra-athletes while never thinking of herself as an athlete. She would watch her son Alex climb and think, wow. She would watch her daughter Stacia run marathons and think, wow. And all the while, she sat on the sidelines, never for one minute considering that she could run. In fact, she was convinced she couldn't run. And being a rock climber never even entered the scope of her thinking at that point. Until it did. Funny enough, a simple walk with her dog changed her life. I can't wait for you to hear. Okie dokie. Without further ado, here's Deirdre Wallenick. Let's go. Hey, Deirdre, thank you so much for being with me today. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited to have you here today. Um, for guests who are listening, you might need to go back and listen to episode 103 to Melissa Davey, who is how I connected with Miss Deirdre today, because Melissa Davey is in the middle of post-production on a new film about you, and that's called uh, Climbing Into Life, right? Yep. Yeah, and you just sent me the trailer last night. <laughs> yeah, the trailer just came out yesterday, yeah. That is so cool. So I'm going to ask you a quick question before we get into your story. I was looking at the footage and I mean, you are literally climbing up a scale of rock. I'm, uh, is that El Capitan that you're climbing? Yeah. Is not that? All, not, not all the images in the trailer are El Cap, but one or two are. Gotcha. And is that, um, is that from your more recent climb for your yeah. 70th birthday? Yes. Wow. Yes. Holy cannoli, that is amazing, <laughs> amazing. So I read, well, I didn't read your book. I listened to your book on Audible. Okay. That was The Sharp End of Life. And I mean, unbelievable. You started running at 55. Yeah. You started climbing at 59 years old. You're the oldest woman to, well, at the time, you were the oldest woman to scale El Capitan I still am, yeah. And you still are, I assume. Well, I, broke, I broke my own record. Now you broke your own <laughs> record, exactly. So you did it at 66 and now again at 70 years old. Yeah. We have to, anyway, I didn't climb it like, you know, like my son climbs it. I didn't climb it like the elite rock climbers climb it. I climbed it on a rope, which is a little bit different. Deirdre, Deirdre, come on. Later. Let's not take away from what you did. Yeah, no, no, no unbelievable what what you've done and i have to tell i have i just have to tell you i i'm kind i was i'm kind of nervous to talk to you today <laughs> because you you're a, like a force of nature from 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 what i'm looking at i i don't climb i have i have done some rappelling in my in my youth what i kind of want to go back to is is i think the moment in time before before you even started running okay. to talk about the difference i'd like to know what you've learned about yourself mm -hmm. in the process of becoming a runner when you didn't mm -hmm. consider yourself to be a runner right and and then moving on and 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 becoming a climber and i'm just kind of that's, speechless that's about everything of, you've done that's a lot of stuff to cover <laughs> <laughs> it is it is 
in reading your book, I have to say one of the things that I noticed in reading your book, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna jump in here with this question right off the bat. Mm-hmm. One of the themes that I felt like I, I could really relate to, was a little bit of a, a sense of loneliness mm-hmm. that was a part of your life mm-hmm. before you started running, before you, and especially before you started climbing, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, so. I wonder is, do you think, is that kind of the biggest change to your life in a way, oddly enough, like you, you've become, and I'll let you talk. <laughs> well, what do you mean by the biggest change in my life? What well, mean- what really touched me was your connection to people, to your climbing yeah. community yeah. Well, and well, how that had, changed. I always had a connection to people. I, I'm a people person. Mm-hmm. But I was never allowed to. In that the miserable marriage I was in, I was never allowed to. We had no friends. My husband had no friends. I, I didn't have time to go out and make friends, you know. So that wasn't a big change for me intrinsically. I, I was always that person, but I was never allowed to do it, to, to engage it. You know? So in terms of quantity, yes, the big, big change. I, all of a sudden, I had this whole tribe of friends you know and we did all these amazing things together it was it was wonderful and so yeah that was a huge change yeah so you started running because you were walking your dog right yes yes (laughs) i should i have to tell you that story it's 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 it sort of happened by accident and 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 my son completely changed my life then he's the one who got me into it so not not intentionally but I came, I walked the dog every, I was doing like the work of six people that like for four or five, six years, I was, there was, my father-in-law died, my father died, my died, my son almost died. My, I had all these deaths to deal with and all these houses to deal with alone. You know, I had no help with anything because I didn't have time to go out and find help. I was working full-time, more than full-time at the college teaching. I was still writing to, you know, earn some extra money. I was doing two, um, I was executor for my ex-husband's estate. That's a long story. And that took more hours than my full-time teaching job because I didn't know what I was doing and I I didn't have any help. So I had to write all the documents myself. And anyway, long story short, I had that one. I was helping execute my father's estate with my brother. And I was, I had inherited all the, the, my father was living in Pennsylvania at the time. My mother was from Pennsylvania. And so I had these houses in Pennsylvania that I had to deal with alone. <laughs> so I would, yeah, anyway, I'd go to work in the morning. I'd come home, I'd change my clothes, go to work in the office in my house, do the executorship stuff, do the, write the documents I needed for that day, call all the banks and the credit cards and all this stuff, you know. And then by 10, 11, I couldn't see anymore. I would take the dog for a walk. It was a huge dog, you know, a sled dog, Alaskan sled dog, a Malamute. And so we would go, and she had these long, powerful legs and, you know, built for pulling. And so we would go tearing through the neighborhood, the two of us, in the dark, with my headlamp. And, uh, but, but all my life, though, I knew, I, I grew up in a cloud of smoke. I grew up, you know, like, for, lived in my family home for 25 years, more or less. And uh, it was always a cloud of cigar and cigarette smoke. You know, my, both my parents smoked nonstop. 
And I didn't, nobody knew back then how bad that was or what it did to you. You know, the, you know, the tobacco companies didn't allow that information out into the, the media. And right. there was very little media back then. It was, you know, TV, radio. Um, yeah. So, um, so I, I knew in my heart of hearts, I knew that I could not do anything physically, you know, sustained physically, you know, like running or swimming or anything because I, and it was getting up out of my chair and I was huffing and puffing because my lungs were shot after, after all that. And that's, uh, you know, the lining of the lungs does not grow back. It doesn't get better. So I knew that I was, you know, so, so I came, I went out for a run with the dog and, and, just trying to keep up with her, you know, jogging and then trotting along, trying to keep up with her because I, I knew I needed the exercise, you know, and if I, if we could do it, why not? You know, so I, I tried and, and came tearing back into the house, yelling for Alex. Alex was still living there at that point. And I said, Alex, Alex, I just ran a mile. To me, that was, that was my Everest. That was my Everest. I had re reached my peak, you know, in my own mind. And so Alex comes shuffling now down the hall and says, well, hey, cool, mom. If you can do a mile, you can do a mile and a half. Well, I was completely <laughs> shut down. You know, took the wind out of all my sails. Right. <laughs> and, and at the same time, I knew he was right. He was absolutely uh, right. If, yeah. I could, if I could run a mile, which I never thought I could do, if I could run a mile, maybe I could run a mile and a quarter, you know, mile and two blocks. You know, I wasn't going to push it because I knew I, that's a, you know, no, I, I knew I couldn't, but maybe. I love that you just put, you knew you couldn't yeah, in quotes yeah, for anybody I, who's not, you can't yeah. see, right? Because we, know, we, we know tell ourselves things, things right? Yeah. I, told we know. Myself, I told myself that all my life yeah, yeah. and it was well-founded in reality, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, Reality can be reshaped. Um, I knew and then I didn't know. And then I wondered and then I thought about it some more. And then I did another two blocks with the dog and then another two blocks with the dog. And, and then before you know it, I was a runner, I, you know, doing real road races, you know, organized road runs. And then I started doing real runs and half marathons. And then I've done four marathons now. And, uh, which is unbelievable and i i remember <laughs> i'm getting the image right now of your first run what was it like a turkey trot right right and you were were you wearing were you wearing corduroys or wearing jeans? jeans we're wearing jeans and a flannel shirt <laughs> cotton t-shirt flannel shirt probably had a belt on my jeans i don't know and and sneakers from kmart you know I, oh my gosh bless I you i know i was not a runner Did, I, I can only imagine the chafing I, I, yes, can't, exactly. I can't even. Everything hurt. Everything hurt. Oh. And, yeah. Gave my final shirt to my son because he you know, did the race with me. And he ran backwards in front of me telling me stories about his latest uh, climbing competition in Europe and, and ran circles around me and up on other people's lawns and back and forth. And without him, without the entertainment of his stories and the, something to focus on, Besides all the pain I was in, I was in a lot of pain, <laughs> pain and discomfort. I mean, my glasses kept sliding down my nose. I could push the nose up, and I didn't have any kind of visor or anything. And 
California, even in November, you know, it's a turkey thing. Even in November, a lot of sun that day, I, I remember my eyes were running from the sun. Maybe we should just... back up a minute, Deirdre, because we haven't even really talked about who your son is. Um, okay, okay. So I I will have mentioned this in the, in the intro, I'm sure, but the, I love how how much a part of your story is Alex and yeah. and the challenge of raising an ultra athlete. Yeah. Um, so I'm yeah. going to let you back us back us up for just a quick hot okay. minute to yeah. who Alex was and 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 because I find it fascinating that he you know you walk in and you're like I ran a mile. Yeah, oh, great. You yeah. can do you my, can do more. My, yeah. Yeah. Alex, <laughs> my son is the only person on the planet able to climb a rock wall like El Capitan in Yosemite with no safety equipment, no ropes, no nothing. He did that. They made a movie about it. It's called Free Solo. And it, it I mean, the New York Times called it the greatest uh, athletic achievement ever on the planet. And, and, and I think they're right. I mean, I don't think anybody will ever repeat that. Um, you have to be like Alex to to be able to handle that kind of um, mental focus, you know, for hour after hour on something that dangerous. Um, so yeah, it, it, that's my son. So I raised him. He was always like that, you know, from birth. From birth, all he ever wanted to do was get higher, you know, up, up, up higher. And it was he was a horrible kid to raise because I didn't understand yet you know, what he was like. I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand his gift. We don't, right? As as parents, no, you don't, no. you have no idea what's what's really going on in those minds right. or what's exactly. driving, right? Exactly. Like I'm, my kids are still young. I've got a, a 15 year old and an 18 year old. Um, and my 18 year old, I, I've had a sense of his inclinations for a while, but I will say my 15 year old is still a complete mystery to me. I am so excited to see whatever he ends up doing because yeah, I is, have no fun. idea. Yeah. To watch that evolve. I didn't have anything to watch evolve with my son because he knew from birth what he wanted to do and that he never wavered in that. Yeah, he was climbing up, climbing up crazy things. What at ten and a half months or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, earlier than that, he could. Oh my gosh. Climb stuff earlier than that. He was walking at ten months, but he could climb before, well before that. I mean, we, oh. we, I could never have him in a crib, never. I could never have him in a playpen or anything like that. He was out in, in a trice. I mean, it was it was child's play to him to get out of a crib, really. You know. So, you know, he slept on a baby futon. We had futons, we had lived in Japan for four years. And so uh, we had baby futons. And so he slept on the floor, which is the only place safe for him to sleep. <laughs> so and yeah, it was different, different way to raise a child. I had raised my daughter, you know, she's two years older. Mm -hmm. She's also an extreme athlete. We're right, about you have raised yeah. two extreme ultra two athletes. Extreme athletes. Yes. How and, does that happen? And they're very different. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I've, some of it is genetics and some of it is just them, I think, you know, because I'm, I'm a very go, go, go kind of person, you know. Clearly. Okay. So let's yeah. back up another hot minute because how many languages do you speak? Eight and a little bit. That's all. Yeah. And, yeah. and you not only, um, have been conductor of of the local orchestra where you are but you founded it right you created it out of nothing yep yeah 
And you I, play uh, how many instruments, Deirdre? A lot. I, I mean, I, my main instruments are piano, flute, clarinet, guitar, and anything with a keyboard, basically. You know, accordion. Wow. I have a big accordion. And, and I, I can play a lot of instruments, and I, I always have, all my life. And I've been a performing musician all my life. And I always dreamed of conducting an orchestra, conducting, you know. But uh, in order to conduct an orchestra, you have to be trained to do that. You know, it's a quite a specific skill. And you have to, you know, have your credentials on paper somewhere to show somebody that, uh, you know, I, I'm worthy of this, you know, I deserve it. And, and you have to know an orchestra somewhere, you know, and all these things never come together, you know. But we moved to this place that had West Sacramento, which is on the other side of the river from Sacramento, probably. It's, it was not, it was, what would, they called it an unincorporated area, it, you know, belonged to the county. It wasn't a city yet. It was tiny. There was nothing there. No stores, no movies, no inter nothing. Two restaurants. And, um, you know, for everything, everybody went across the river to Sacramento. It was five minutes away, but a different world. And so there was nothing there. And I didn't want to raise my kids in a place that had no culture. Because I've been a musician all my life and a linguist and a teacher, a professor, you know, I crave that stuff. And, and I know that kids do too. And if they're exposed to it, it becomes part of their life. And it's what I wanted for my kids. I didn't want emptiness in West Sacramento because we, with a kid like Alex, we didn't have, I didn't have, I was alone with the kids all the time. And I did not have time to be driving over to Sacramento to do stuff all the time. You know? So West Sacramento was our home for a while and I wanted to make it the best it could be. So I started an orchestra. I, I was a writer uh, already. So I knew, I knew how to contact the press and get, get people writing about it and, and you know, get it out into the, the media. And I did, and I did a pretty good job of that. And so we got musicians, you know, closet musicians came from all over the region. Because if you play an oboe, say, or, or a bassoon, where are you gonna do that? You know, if you're if you're an amateur, you know, you're an amateur bassoon player, you know you play really well and you love playing it, but you know, where are you gonna play your bassoon or your anything? So we were a wonderful outlet outlet for the region. And I whipped those guys into great shape. We played all over the region for four years. It was amazing. Wow. Amazing. So I have to tell you, so um, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're listening to all the things you've done, Deirdre. And one of the things that I, one of the reasons that I'm like, oh, I, I was kind of nervous to talk to you. And, and I want to make sure that the people, you know, the people listening, I've had friends who listen to my podcast who hear these incredible stories from people. Yeah. And it almost becomes something that you, it's like, that is great for them for that person right for right. that person right. i mean you, as i said you kind of come across as, as a force of nature do, do do you have like was there fear in like you just seem like you just decide to do things and and just do them well but do you do you come across fear and barriers that stop you i i agonized over, over the same fears and barriers that everybody else does. I mean, it's everyone does. I mean, that's human nature. And to hold anyone up and say, well, she's different or he's different. That's not good. In the early days of my son's career, 
you know, oh, you did a lot of interviews, radio and TV and all that stuff. And, uh, and the same thing would come up. Alex was always, I don't know how to put this exactly. He always assumed that anybody could do what he does. And <laughs> even I, even his mother, I mean, I knew that to a certain extent that was not true, but to just an equal extent, that is certainly true. Because what he does, he works hard for. It's a mm. choice. Mm. Everything in life is a choice. Fear is a choice. And when I was a kid, I chose to ignore fear. I mean, I knew, I mean, not to ignore it. You can't ignore fear. It comes up, it hits you in the head or in the heart and says, don't do that. But you, your reaction to it is your choice. And Alex talks about that a lot in his interviews. Your reaction to it is your choice. No one else's. No one can tell you what to be afraid of. No one can tell you what you can't do. And yet the media try all the time. Oh, if you're 50, you shouldn't be doing this. If you're 50, you should be taking this drug and you should be drinking this and eating this. If you're 40, you should be, well, screw that. <laughs> Who do? They don't know you. They don't know your body and your mind and they have no idea what you're capable of and you don't either until you try and there's no reason anyone can't do what i did if they're willing to work hard at it life is hard work <laughs> you know we are, we're always looking for the easy way out there is no easy way off this planet life is hard work and if you have a dream of you know i'm like my most recent dream, El Capitan. I, I, that wasn't a dream of mine until recently. And, you know, I'm 65-ish, I, I started thinking about it because I was already a runner. I was always already a marathoner. And I had learned to dig deep. I had learned to really push myself and see if I could do one more block, see if I could climb one more wall or grab one more hold before I fell off. And I had learned that through running. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of known it all my life. I mean, I mean, who in their right mind goes out and starts an orchestra? Or, or, <laughs> right. a, or a publishing company. I had my own publishing company for 10 years, I think it was. And we did a whole, a whole bunch of books. And it was very successful, wow. but very, very time consuming. I, I had to give it up. I just didn't have the time. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, life is a choice. Everything in life is a choice. And reacting to fear or trepidation or anxiety is a choice. And we make these choices every day. Excuse me. <coughs> we make these choices every day, all day long. You know, um, you're afraid to go talk to your neighbor about the dogs. They're ruining your life. Are you going to let them control your life or are you going to take control yourself? You know, are you afraid to go talk to them? Yeah. How you react to that fear is your choice. And people abdicate that choice because of the media. The battering at them. If you're, you know, 40, you should take this drug. And you hear that 96 times in a day. If you watch cable television, all you, all you hear is drug ads. That should be illegal. That's is not... That's not our natural state. Taking drugs is not our natural state. And yet they, they have made people think that it is. 
I mean, all the all the ads say, you know, you should be out running or that before engaging in any physical activity, talk to your doctor. How many times have you heard that in an advertisement? Mm -hmm. Before whatever, talk to your doctor. Why? If you want to go run, go run. And find out if it's good for you or bad yeah, for you. Because you know all they're doing at that point is covering their own butts. Exactly. exactly. Right? They're exactly. covering their own butts. They're not looking out for you. Exactly. exactly. That is a limitation and, that is purely buy, about that. I've never understood why people buy into that. It was it was the same when I was a kid, you know. Oh, if you're a girl, you shouldn't do this. Why is that? If not, you know, if I'm gonna go climb on the building, I, I did. I was a tomboy, you know. I followed the the, the big boy up the trees and out to the garage roofs and, and and up the buildings. I had a lot of stones and bricks. And and if my mother had known what I was up to, because that was back in the day when all kids just lived outdoors. Their parents didn't know where they were. They were out. They were out playing. I'll you see know. you at sunset, right? Exactly. Come home before dark. All the moms would come to the stoop in the front of the house and yell supper come on home <laughs> and we would all go home you know so if my mother had known that she would have been appalled because <laughs> i was not following the rules you know and the rules are made by somebody else not you yeah this, this is my soapbox i'm sorry i could go on oh and on. <laughs> go, go on and on dear drug bring it i mean you were you were it's so singing sad. my song. It yeah, it's just so sad what we allow the media to tell us to do or not to do or to eat or to listen to or to whatever. Yeah. It's just so sad that we abdicate making our own choices. And 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 we do it to each other too yes. because yes. because yes. we've absorbed it. Well, also from our parents, right? We, mm -hmm. it, it's it's and then it's exacerbated by the media and the yes. movies and yes. you know it, yes. it's just constant. There's constant messaging coming at us, right? Um, exactly. And that's one advantage. So that's, that's one advantage to not having uh, a television in the house when your kids are small. Mm. We did not. And so the kids did not get these messages all the time. They got them when they were at somebody else's house. Mm -hmm. They come home and we talk about it, and they could see we, what, what we what I thought about all that nonsense. But and as adults now, they have um, each of them has thanked me for that choice. So that is, to a large extent, where this comes from this this abdication of our own responsibility and our own decision making. That's where that comes from. We're told we're it's we're hit over the head with it all the time, and when you turn that off, oh, all of a sudden you become your own person, and you can do whatever you dream of doing. There's nothing stopping you. There's nothing stopping anybody, you know, but their own choices. Absolutely, you know. I've posted a couple of things now. Now that we're kind of uh, we. You know, we, we're friends on Instagram and all that. And I've posted yeah. a couple of things about um, the fear of aging, yes. which I, is yes. also yes. something that is, again, passed down to us through those ads and and from right. everything. I mean, it is it's just this this ageism and we, we absorb right. it. Right. right. And. But you don't have you don't seem to have a feeling. I mean, do you ever feel stopped? by your age or is it just something that you're able to recognize and move through i didn't when i was four by following all those big boys 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't when I was, what was I, I guess it was 19 or 20. I, I, this isn't a story, it's not in the book, but um, I always wanted to play soccer. Soccer was, in this country, was not really well known when I was a kid. You know, it, it, everybody, everybody did baseball, stickball out in the street, you know, mm-hmm. football, American football. Um, but so I, I was always intrigued by soccer. And a lot of my friends, I was always a, a linguist, you know, from the get-go, from age two, you know, from birth onward. I was always immersed in different languages in the way I grew up. And a lot of my friends were from other countries, uh, other, parts, other parts of the world, and they all played soccer. And it, it looked way cool to me. I always wanted to try it. Well, no girls did that back then. Girls weren't supposed to, you know. We are supposed to wear dresses and behave mm-hmm. ourselves. But heck, I wanted to play soccer, and so I wound up. <laughs> I wound up playing on a. Um, it was a friends team, not not a not a sponsor team, you know, a friends team. Mm-hmm. Just a bunch of guys got together, and I wound up playing on this friends team. Every we played every Sunday, I think, or every Saturday in the park uh, that became the World's Fair, and that we went back to you know, Flushing Meadow Park in Queens, and uh, it was all men. They were all black or brown, one one or two white guys, but and they were all from foreign countries, and me. <laughs> and I I suppose that that might have stopped a lot of people from joining, from even thinking of going up and asking if they you know, but one or two of them were friends of mine. One was a friend from college, and we went to the same French classes together, and. Um, so, yeah, I, I never bought into that. I, I guess it was partially the way I was raised, but not entirely because my parents, parents were big time believers of all that fear stuff. So, and all their families were. So, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but there's nothing stopping anybody from doing anything if they want to. And if you don't find out how to do it and go out and get the necessary information, make the contacts, whatever, to do what you want to do. Maybe you didn't want it badly enough. You know, that's the only thing I can think of that would stop you. Yeah. You know, fear is a choice, entirely a choice. I love your take on it. I really do. It's, and, and you're absolutely a hundred percent right. It's, it is, it's a choice. And and we just forget it's a choice. I I think until you recognize it's a choice, I think it can be something that runs you and and you're not even aware. It controls your life from birth, cradle to grave, basically, if you let it. That's the part I don't understand, why people let it. Do you... um, just have a question about like the moving through the fear for you. Do you automatically, like if you, do you recognize when the fear comes up? Oh yes. Oh yes. What, <laughs> what do you do in that moment? Okay. Deirdre? Share back. with us a little bit. What do you do in that moment? Well, let's move backwards. Uh, in okay. To um, my, my first published book. I had, I had a publisher. I think they were in Tennessee or somewhere that part of the country, Tennessee. That's, yeah, Memphis. Is that Tennessee? Memphis. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they wanted me to do a book because I was already an established writer. I wrote for all the newspapers in the region, uh, magazines and stuff. So my name was out there. 
mm-hmm. and they found me. They wanted me to do a book uh, about um, touring the Sacramento region with children. This was way before the, that trend was a trend, you know, whatever, fill in the blank with kids, you know, that was not a trend yet. Right, now it's a bunch of mommy bloggers doing right, the same right. thing, right? We were, yeah. we were gonna start that trend in Sacramento, which is a very uh-huh. small region. And so I had the book, I did the book for them, I did all the pre-marketing research for them because they were there and I was here, you know, so I did, I made all the contacts and all that. And then they went under as a publisher, they stopped publishing. So I had this great book. And so I tried to sell it to other publishers, but Sacramento is too small a region for like a New York publisher to pick up. It's just too, you know, uh, uh, any corporate publisher, they, 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 what do you call it? They market like say to the West. Well, Sacramento is way too small for that. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't sell it to it. They all said the same thing. Great book. Well done. Sorry. You know, so my choice was again, uh, you know, fear my choice was put it in the drawer and say well that was fun or try to do it myself and i had no intention of ever going into business or being a publisher or anything like that that's uh, you know t- total anathema <laughs> to my being you know i'm i'm an artist i paint i write i play you know music um and lang it's just not me i thought just like running was not me, I thought. Right, oh my God. And so I found, I started, I'm a fairly intelligent person, you know, I can figure things out. So I said, okay, publishing, what does that mean? What does a publisher do? Do you have any idea what a publisher does? Most people don't. I didn't, I had no idea. Does the publisher print the book? The vaguest of understandings. The publisher doesn't print the book. Does the publisher, no. So I, I said, you know, I went to the library and with the bookstores and found out you know, I got some books about what a publisher does and found out what's in t- what, what it entails, what you have to know, what you have to have, what you have to do. Um, you know, all those little numbers in the front pages of the book, you know, the, the ISBN number and the this, the SKU number, the, where do those come from? I had no clue. So I had to find all that out. So I found it all out and realized that anybody can do this. You know, anybody with a modicum of good sense and a, and, and a half a brain can do this. Okay, well, I had a great book. So I did it. I jumped in feet first and uh, I became a publisher, an independent publisher. I, at, the, at the beginning, I was a self-publisher. And that, that has a, a stigma to it. You know, yes, less publisher. less than it did, but no, yeah, back yeah. then for sure. There's no, there's no, there's no quality control if you're publishing your own stuff. You can do whatever you want. Right. But I did go on to publish other people's stuff as well. So I became an independent publisher, and it, it's just a question of you know finding out what you need, all the little baby steps. You can do anything by baby steps, and that that's been the whole learning curve of my last what 20 and years and when you if you were to back up and think about that oh, okay. the let choice get... the, the fear that was in the way yeah let you... me get to, back to that yeah what started me on this story so i became a publisher and so my first book you know sacramento with kids and turned out to be a bestseller in this region and so it came out oh, okay i've got this great book now what so i became a public speaker how 
Many people do you know who are afraid of public speaking? I'm raising my I hand. I was terrified of public speaking. <laughs> I was so shy when I was growing up. I could never get in front of the class and you know read something or, or even talk. Oh, I was terrified. I just shut down completely. But I had a product. I needed to sell it to make up the money I'd spent already on it. All of a sudden, the motivation was there. And I became quite the public speaker. I've spoken on every radio and TV station in the region. I've spoken to every, you know, moms of twins and Girl Scouts and, and every group imaginable. I took my boxes of books and I spoke and I signed books and I sold out. Time after time, we sold out the printing of Sacramento with Tears. And so it's, it's a question of choice. Do I really want to do this badly enough? I did, because I wanted to sell my books. Is it as bad as I think? Definitely not. <laughs> They're people. I'm people. We're in the same room together. They want to hear what I have to say. You know, that's easy. And it's a choice. Fear is a choice. Reacting to it is a choice. I could have gone the other way, said, oh, I can't do this, and put it in my drawer and say, well, that was fine. And it would still be there. It would, it would have still been a learning experience on my part, but I would mm. have learned something different, mm. totally different, mm. you know? And you have to go for those learning experiences where you grow instead of shrinking back and saying, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I can't do that. Oh, I can't run. Oh, I can't climb El Cap. That's for other people. Why? Make it for you. You know, anybody can do anything if they put their mind to it and baby steps are the answer to everything so this is making me think of with your in regards to your climbing before you were a climber i know that you had really a bad experience with el capitan right involved where you got left behind on a hike yeah and yeah. you were terrified well that wasn't el cap but yeah it was no, it wasn't el cap but it was in yosemite okay yeah. uh-huh i had nothing but bad memories of the place yeah yeah I, I never wanted to go there ever again after my husband died i just closed that door but then that door sort of popped open a little bit and a little bit more and yeah it just changed yeah when you started to think about climbing el cap and just it became that germ of an idea before you did it did you immediately decide yes i'm going to or was that were you again faced with that moment of oh that's beyond me i i well a little bit of both mm -hmm. a little bit of both can you see the photos behind me i can yeah yeah and where is it this one can you see that is a climb called uh, Royal Arches, and it's very, very big climb. I guess you can see it a little bit better now. Um, it's a big wall. What some climbers call a big wall. Big wall and climbing, climbing means it might take more than a day. You know, most climbers do this one in a day, but some don't. But um, it's a big wall, and I, I wasn't sure I could climb it, but my son was willing. He was there. They were filming the movie already, and so. And the film crew was all around. And so he said, well, yeah, let's do Royal Arches. So we did Royal Arches. 
and I did it. It was very hard for me. If for him, it's, he didn't even need the rope, obviously. But for me, you know, and he led me up and made the anchors everywhere at each. It was for 15 pitches, which is 15 rope lengths tall, which is about 2,000 feet. Wow. 2,000 something. I'm not sure. It was smaller than El Capitan, which is 3,200. Um, so anyway, we did it. I, it was hard work for me. There were several times where I had to stop and I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to get past that point. But somehow I just found dug deep and found a way, you know, and I got I got up it. And when we were coming back down, uh, we, we rappelled down the front. It, it, sometimes you can walk off the back of these things, uh, you know, down a, a trail of some sorts or, mm-hmm. or bushwhack down. This one we rappelled down the front on ropes, and um, and so that's 15 ropes to rappel down. It's a lot of work. <laughs> oh my god! A gosh. lot of work. After all the climbing and yeah, the exhaustion, exactly. right? Well, we started like a civilized hour, nine in the morning, and we were coming down for supper time. You know, it was like seven in the evening, which is a pretty decent time to do such a walk. For me, anyway, not for him. He could have done it in an hour. But for me, it was pretty decent time. And, and you have to keep in mind that I was always uh, climbing with the, we were the two extremes. You know, I was the old lady mom and he was the best on the planet you know so we're <laughs> so i tend to compare myself but that's really a stupid thing to do because nobody compares to him but anyway we're coming back down and i'm thinking because this wall is on the same side of the valley as el capitan just two miles down the valley is long and thin this is way down the east end of the valley and el cap is down the west end of the valley but it's on the same side same basic basically the same glaciated wall of granite you know so I'm thinking all the way down it, it just, I was thinking, well, we made it. And in decent time, I wonder if someday I might do that other big wall down the road a bit, you know? But I didn't let that surface, I never said anything about it because I knew there's like, like the running, I knew that I could never do anything like that. That was for the elite climbers, all young guys in their twenties. And you know, that wasn't me. But I and so I went home and oh, darn it, I couldn't shut that down. I just could not shut that down. I kept thinking, but I did it. I did that one. If I could do that, and I just couldn't shut that down. And so next time he came through the house to to restock his van or whatever he was doing, he wasn't living here anymore at that time. The next time he came through the house, I I just mentioned to him, you think Alex had to? I was sitting at my computer. He came through. I was looking at El Capitan. Because I study, I'm, I'm a studier. You know, I've, I've always been a, a professor or a student. You know? So I studied everything I could find on the web about El Cap, about climbing it, and what's entailed, what I would need, what I would need to be able to do, how high, you know, all the, all the math. <laughs> very, very daunting math. Oh God, it's a big thing. So I asked him, do you think there's any chance that maybe someday you might lead me up El Cap? I really didn't expect him to say yes, because of all these mitigating factors. I mean, it was too old for that. You know, I, I was not strong enough to. I could. I can't do a pull up. I can't do a push up. <laughs> you know, I can't lift my own body weight on my arms. And I always assumed that that was necessary for climbing, but it's definitely not. I've always assumed so too. I know most people. You assume you pull yourself up. That's so not true. <laughs> most climbing takes place in the legs and the feet. 
but your arms are mostly for balance and position. Well, I stand a chance. You've given yeah. me oh, hope, yeah, Deirdre. Next time I'm, I'm in the East, we'll have to go climbing together. Yeah. <laughs> in the gym. Keep, keep it safe. Okay. So, so, he's, so he didn't bat an eye. He just said, yeah, sure. That's what he said about all my climbs. All these pictures on the wall, all, all the climbs I did with him. Is that the climb where he said, okay, but you're going to have to learn how to... How to do Mars, yes. How yes. to use, what What are they called again? They're called Jumars. Jumars. And so then you started training on the Jumars, right? Yeah. Yes. He said, oh, yeah, oh, no, yeah, sure. But first, I have to learn how to jug. The climbers jug. call them jugs, jugging, using Jumar. The Jumar is a big metal handle and it has a uh, moving part, has teeth inside and it clips onto the rope and it attaches to your harness and to your foot on the right side. And you have one for your left side, attaches to your left foot and your left you know, side of your harness. And you basically ladder your way up the rope. You push this one up and your foot goes with it because they're all attached. And then you stand up on that foot and then you push the other one up and you stand up on that foot for 3000 feet. Oh my gosh. It's incredible work. It's an incredible hard work if you've never done it. And it's painful in so many ways. And it, the first time I did it, I was a wreck. And I was just in the gym, a 35 foot wall. <laughs> I was a wreck. I was bleeding. My hands were bleeding. My shin was all purple and yellow for banging into the, there, there are clips and knots and metal parts all over that, you know, and Oh, I was a wreck that first time. I got down from the first try in the, in the gym. I thought to myself, okay, 35 feet. I just did. I'm de destroyed. <laughs> I have to be able to do that 100 times to get to the top of El Cap. 100 times. So instead of saying, well, I can't do that, I went home and I did the arithmetic. Okay, thirty-three thousand. Uh, the gym was uh, so I have to. Uh, so I, I figured I calculated how many weeks it would take to get to that if I did it twice a week at the gym. And I had a friend who had a big tree at their house. I set up on the big tree. I just did the arithmetic, like like with publishing. I found out what publishers do. I, all the baby steps. I did all the baby steps, and by baby steps you can do anything. Find out what you need. I needed I needed Jumars, and I needed this kind of uh, slings, and I needed these kind of beaners, and I need you know. I found it's uh, finding that next handhold, right? What I, it's that what? Well, no, see, with Jumars, there's no handholds. You're just no, but I mean, I mean, right. it's it's like the baby step is like yes, yes, handhold. Ne yes. Oh, can yes. I take that next step? Can I take exactly. that next? You never step? you never climb the whole wall. You climb three feet at a time. You know, two handholds at a time. And so I found out all the baby steps. I got them or I learned them. I learned how to do it. I, I, and then I started going outdoors and practicing on Jumars. And son of a gun, 18 weeks later, we went and did El Cap. To everybody's amazement, especially mine. You know? Anybody can do this. It's just a question of making up your mind, finding out what you need, finding out those baby steps and getting outside and doing it. You know, you got to go, mother nature, your mother nature knows what you are, knows what you need and, and is willing to give it to you. You got to go out, visit your mother, you know, your mother nature, get out there and on her terms, find out what you need to accept her terms, you know, to go up a rock wall or to swim an ocean or to whatever you want to do. Like right now, my, my daughter is currently biking 
with her partners. She and James are biking across the country from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Alone, just the two of them, no support, no trucks following them, no press, and just the two of them camping all the way. Amazing. Say, well, that's ridiculous. That's, it's only ridiculous if you believe it is. You know, they just decided to do it and you're doing it. Right now they're in somewhere east of South Dakota, I think. And at that point, it's really, it's not about, well, I think, and maybe you can answer this from your own point of view. It's not about getting, it's not about, okay, I did that. It's, it's about finding it's out what you can do. It's that right. process of, can I do it? Right, right. And it's what you take from that process, right? Mm -hmm. You may not finish El Cap, but heck, you may make a good stab at it. And you'll find out on your way up what you're, what you're made of. <laughs> there was a lot of fear involved in learning to do El Cap. You know, just, just looking at it, it's scary. I mean, even to Alex, just looking at it from the valley is scary. It's terrifying. The thought of being on that, you know, a thousand feet up, hanging on a little skinny rope is terrifying. So you have to make friends with the fear. You have to find out why you should not fear that. And the only way is to to conquer the fear, if you will, is, is to just, you know, break it down into little baby steps. What would I need to be able to do? It's like, did you, you've seen El, uh, Free Solo, the movie about Alex's? I have, I have to admit, I have not seen it. Okay, you'll have to no. watch it. No, but I the, do have to watch it. There's a scene in it. I mean, he gets to this point, the, the hardest point on the climb that he did. It's 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 ridiculously hard, and the first time, and because he worked on El Cap, hanging on you know, like thousand foot long ropes, he worked he worked on it for ten years. I mean, he was always working on El Cap. Every time I talked to Alex, oh, where are you going? Oh, I'm working on El Cap. He's been doing that for years, and this part, uh, the, the what do they call it, the karate chop or something, I can't remember. But if you've seen the movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. And he he fell off it over and over he fell off it on the ropes you know over and over and instead of just going home and saying well that's too hard he figured out how better how a better way to do it and he figured out how many times he would have to repeat that to be able to do it like me going up the 35 foot gym thing on the jumars how many times do i have to be able to, i'd have to be able to do that a hundred times to do el cap all right, let's get started. You know, um, it's everything is a choice. Everything is a choice. And we abdicate those choices to our own detriment, you know? I, what more needs to be said, right? I, <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, Deirdre, thank you. I, seriously, I'm going to end it there because I, I really think that that says everything. That really Everything does. is a choice. That says it all. It really does. Turn off the TV. Turn off your screens. Get out to, you know, visit your mother, nature, and go. Go do what you want to do. There's no reason not to. You know, I'm so feel. glad we had this time to sit down together. Thank you for making the time for me. Sure, my pleasure. And I can't wait well first of all i need to go see free solo yeah, or i need to get it yeah. and i cannot wait for climbing into life 
Right. Next year, you can go see my movie. Right. Yeah. Very exciting. <laughs> next, time I, next time I come east, I do that once in a while. Next time I come east, we'll have to uh, go hit a climbing gym together. That would be amazing. That would yeah. be amazing. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to have to take you up on that. and Maybe we'll have to do another podcast episode. Good. <laughs> or at least I'll record some yeah. of the experience or something. Yeah. And uh, that would be... Not to California and do it. That would be fun. Yeah, that would be... Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That would be amazing. <laughs> would be amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Man, Deirdre is indeed a powerhouse. She might even be superhuman. But here's the thing, the rest of us can learn from her and incorporate some of her practices and beliefs into our own lives. Whenever we feel that fear is stopping us from getting what we want, we can remind ourselves that our reaction to that fear is a choice and that we never climb the mountain all at once. We do it three feet at a time, one handhold at a time. Baby steps are the key to doing anything you want to do. Oh, here's an example for you. When I started the podcast, I really wanted to interview this woman named Melissa Davey, who quit her successful corporate career to become a filmmaker and ended up making a documentary called Beyond 60. I was afraid to approach her. You know the routine. Oh, little old me, I'm just starting this podcast. Why would she talk to me? <laughs> yep, that was me. Um, but I did take the baby steps necessary to create a podcast. And two years later, I randomly crossed paths with Melissa Davey in a clubhouse room because of my podcast. Right place, right time. The next thing I know, I'm interviewing Melissa, which leads me to interviewing Deirdre. And here we are. And by the way, my interview with Melissa Davey was episode 103. If you want to go back and listen to it, it was a great conversation. Oh, and I have to tell you, I finally watched Free Solo. I had purposely not watched it before talking to Deirdre because I, I really wanted to focus on her accomplishments rather than her famous son. But if you want to see someone taking the steps necessary to conquer fear, this is certainly the movie for you. What he did was beyond extraordinary. But again, he did what Deirdre recommends. He approached the problem he was trying to solve over and over again until he found the way to make it happen without killing himself in the process. Spoiler alert, he does not die. <laughs> anyway, if you are feeling stuck I want you to know you don't have to figure this out all by yourself. I have a very fun way for you to start getting out of your own way. You can join the Midlife Uprising community for women, where every month we get together on Zoom to reimagine our futures together. I promise there's not a single mean girl in the group. It is a group of fierce women who are committed to helping each other and cheering each other on. Listen, I tried the going it alone route for way too long, and I will tell you that collaboration and community are way more fun. You can check it out at midlifeuprising.com. And hey, feel free to reach out if you have any questions about it. And if you'd like more information about Deirdre Wallenick and a link where you can watch the trailer for Climbing Into Life, just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 111. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.